And that jarring cacophony for the third week in a row, exactly the same one, tells you that you're listening to the Power of Three podcast, the doctor podcast that likes to discuss, discourse, digest and disagree and dance, as we found out last week, as we work our way through the Doctor Who universe in all its forms. I'm Kenny Smith. I'm David Steele, welcome back, thank you for joining us. We are still season 20 themed this week, aren't we Kenny? We are. I was sort of unexpected one. This wasn't originally planned, but it then popped into my mind, I thought, you know what, we've spoken with Steve Gallagher before, he's lovely, why don't we ask him about the writing of a story, given that he's one of only, what, two season 20 writers that are still, well, I suppose Chris Bailey we don't know, but um, Peter Grimwade's gone, Barbara Clegg's 93, Terence has left Can us. Imagine, we could, imagine we got Barbara Clegg on listeners, wouldn't that be good? That'd be amazing. The only, I'm right in thinking, the only, apart from Jane Baker, the only female writer of the original series. You, you, might, you might want to throw Leslie Scott in there with a question mark if she really existed. Paul mm. Erickson insisted she did nothing. Of course. But of course. I quite mm. like the ARC listeners. There's an episode called The Steel Sky that was broadcast, um, what, how many years to the day before I was born? Something like that. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Terminus. Kenny, I quite like Terminus. What do you think about it? <laughs> well, as we record, we've just been to Tom Harris's 25th wedding anniversary. Uh, Keith McCulloch was there playing all the tunes. Yep. The 8891 Royale, mm-hmm. Future Pleasure. Honestly, everything that you could possibly want was there. Sylvester McCoy, special guest of honour, which I think made Tom's day. We're jesting, of course. Um, yeah, because... Our, um, our, our best wishes and all that to Tom and Carolyn on the occasion. Yes, we had a great time, and um, we just thought we'd give him a quick mention so that Tom was here with us in spirit, if not in person. Although, if we thought about it, we could probably have asked him for a quick word, but we didn't, so too late, Tom. Yeah, Sorry, well. mate. But back to, back to Terminus. I remember it very well from when it first went out, because it was, as I've said, when we were talking about season 20, this was the sort of peak of my sort of youthful sort of interest. And it's a story that I remember very fondly um, because it was just so atmospheric. And what I like about it now is that atmosphere, but it's sort of, it's a sort of clinicalness to it. Um, obviously the location, but it's, it's I think out of a lot of story, a lot of, a lot of Doctor of that period, it's probably the purest and just pure sci-fi. Um, there's no returning monsters. You can't really count, I think a couple of scenes, you know, I don't think you can count a couple of scenes of the Black Guardian really is as returning monsters, it stands very much on its own. I'm not sure if BF have done an awful lot of any sequels to it yet, I can't think. Nothing at all. I don't think anyone's gone back to Terminus, thank goodness. Um, but I just like the idea of, you know, that timey-wimey idea of this is, you know, this spaceship's going to blow up and that's what was the cause of the Big Bang and all that, and it's a really good, strong science fiction idea. And Peter Davison's hair is amazing, look at those sideburns, <laughs> superb! <laughs> you know, I, um, I love Terminus for the fact that it's quite possibly... Of all the classic series, this is the closest we got to, to use that horrible term, hard sci-fi. Mm. I think because, as you say, clinical is such a great word for it in every respect. The fact that it's me- there's a medical aspect to it. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's um, cold and clinical. Yep. I mean, it's just that the whole feel of it, the look of it. I mean, just you watch it and just like the colour scheme, it feels so real in it's, places. It's a very bleak story in a lot of ways, you know, because, you know, the... the um the battleship grey or military grey corridors and all that and Nissa goes through that the ringer has a horrible time of it and has that very uncertain you know future fate when she decides to stay behind and also all the themes about um you know big, let's be honest big pharma and you know the way that this mass treatment of the ill and all that stuff that's fascinating to think about that's has a real resonance in a similar way to you know that a lot of the stuff in the philip martin stories has more resonance you know years after the event than maybe it did at the time I think Mr. Gallagher was very, or Mr. Lidecker was very forward-thinking, <laughs> and I think it's 
it's a shame that maybe some of the design aspects slightly go against it but <clears throat> you get that quite often in classic who I mean, in this case i'm talking about the um the garm and probably the ridiculous outer space hairspray space pirates you know with, <laughs> with their with their makeup and their their do's and their their big um their big trans transparent helmets it's it's but i don't think those things really go against it it's i know, I know it's not a very well regarded story i know it's not a lot of people's default but um it's one that I that I had to choose one in season twenty. I think it's one that I would go to because it's I like its sterile qualities. It's it's very unique in that way. I think. Yeah, I think sterile is very much the word for it. And as we're recording, listeners, <laughs> there's a squirrel coming towards us. Um, I don't know if he's trying to grab Dave's nuts or anything, but he's Dave. just. <laughs> Dave does not like an innuendo. Yeah, the squirrels just literally just hop past us. So, um, yeah, that's the terminus squirrel. It is now our. I'm just taking a very bloody photograph, which is not even worth posting in a tweet. That was pointless. Oh well. Anyway, yeah, um, for me, terminus is one of those stories that I like. I think it's one that it's not one you automatically go to think, what am I going to put on tonight? But I mean, I think this is a story that I would have been. I'm glad I didn't watch it in lockdown. Because it's, I think it's got that, it's because it's so realistic in so many ways, if that makes sense, the fact that you've got all the disease and it's so well portrayed. But let's talk about the design elements. Wow, the veneer, that skeleton. Yeah. Those, I love those costumes. They look amazing. They look like they're proper armour, not sprayed plastic. Yeah, and, and all of those all those lads, you know, playing, playing the veneer, they're all fantastic. You know, people I've seen them, in, quite a few of them I've seen in other things, you know, since. And they are all fully realised, you know, really believable as people, that horrible situation they're stuck in. And again, what I was saying about the bleakness of the story, the bleakness of their existence is, you know, just stuck on this space station in the middle of nowhere, dependent on this, you know, green sludge to keep them going. It's it's really interesting. It's fascinating. Yep. So much more depth to it than some, you know, and let's be honest, there's a lot of good stuff in season 20. There's some brilliant ideas in season 20, you know. Uh, you've got a, a really solid Mara sequel, Omega coming back, which you might, some people might say is unnecessary, but you know, a year and a half after Three Doctors, of course he's going to come back. Superb. The ideas and imagery, Modern Undead is superb. The same goes for Enlightenment. And The King's Demons is, you know, to use a phrase I don't like, is a fun little historical romp, which, has, as I keep saying, has that brilliant bit with um, when they play the Roger Delgado theme. So there's a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of inspiration and sight. In, in season 20 and despite the fact that it's the, the, the 20th anniversary season it's not relying completely on the gimmicks of say returning monsters um, or returning characters you know I think the next couple of seasons do a much better job of milking that idea for all that it's worth season 20 is a lot to it and Terminus is, is like like the rest of them it's full of good ideas and good performances I think also there's the another element that adds to the bleakness of it is Roger Lim's music absolutely his scores are always they've got that very sad depressing kind of sound. I mean it works brilliantly I think in this story and in Caves of Androzani I think they're the two stories in which it works best yeah um a revelation as well I'm not really a fan of the soundtrack revelation no offence Roger listening to me it always just sounds like, like little electronic farts going off and little <laughs> drum little playing with the the drum beat thing on his Casio keyboard <laughs> trying to speed it up and slow it down without the teacher <laughs> noticing as we all did in, in the 2000s also the 80s when we're talking about the 2000s yeah, Roger Limit's a big part of it because it adds to the atmosphere. There's that. And the sound effects as well. All the, the stuff in part one when the ships, when I say the ship, I mean the TARDIS, is sort of phasing in and out and attaching itself to, to Terminus and all the attendant sound effects and music just really creating the atmosphere. It's quite 
it's not a depressing story at all, but it's a very foreboding and dark and quite a scary story. Probably the scariest story of that season. It's certainly one of the most adult, and given as much as you know some of the themes that it's talking about. And we should talk a little bit about how, um, again, Mark Strickland's just arrived, but he's he's doesn't get an awful lot to do straight away, and it gives Nissa a brilliant send off. I think it's very very true to the character that's been established and. All that shows that all that time in her bedroom synthesizing enzymes was going to get put to good use. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to go and make any comments about Sarah Sutton or Nissa's bedroom. So I'm going to move swiftly good. on. I should hope so too. I'm learning. No, I think um, it's a great send-off for Nissa. It's very true yeah. to character. And the fact that Nissa always obviously wanted to help other people, that mm-hmm. was something that, yeah. that was clear from the word go, you know, from Keeper Tracking, just helping the Doctor and Adric, strangers, and yeah. and this is very much, you know, applying her skills, not just in telebiogenesis, <clears throat> but in everything else that Absolutely. she's learned. I mean, the final scene with her and with Sarah Sutton and Janet Fielder and Peter Davison is marvellous, you know, because Tegan's really upset, she's worried that Nissa's going to die, and, and, you know, but Nissa's, you know, she's resolute, she's made a choice. And we should also probably quickly talk about the fact that Big Finish revisited it. Revisited it. <laughs> I was a bit sceptical when I heard that they were bringing Nissa back, um, but you know they brought her back as older. And when we say that, well, they have really kind of revisited Terminus because they they picked Nissa up again almost immediately after they left her, but some years had passed, and so they could squeeze out some stories with Nissa, Tegan, Turlow, and the Doctor. And that little season twenty and a half or season twenty B stuff that starts is it Cobwebs? Is yes, that the one that with starts Johnny with? Morris's one, yeah. Um, you got stories in there like the Lady of Mercia and you know Eldrad must live. There's some brilliant stuff in that. Little run, um, you know the there's one that's really like a James Herbert novel, novel with rats. I can't remember what that one's called. Rat trap. Yeah, there's the one with um. By Tony Lee. There's the one, the Tanzawing Chang prequel, which is really good because it actually min- really minimises the callbacks and throwbacks. So some, they've done some interesting stuff with this since then. Um, so we really should mention that because you know because we've experienced it and yeah. But none of it really, it didn't detract from the impact of Nissa's actual leaving scene. Yeah. That was The Butcher of Brisbane was the prequel to Talons. Yeah. I had to think of that one there for yeah. a wee second. But yeah, all in all, they've done some really nice stuff with her. And I think that she's a character who's wasn't always what best written in TV, but with somebody like Steve doing it in this case, she's very much playing to her strengths. Yeah, she's, I don't think she's... A lot of time on television, she's very well served. She gets, she's very underwritten, but BF have used that very well. They've played against it in a lot of stories, you know, playing up the, the humour of having this and maybe shoot someone or, you know... I remember the... Um, the run from 2000, run about 2018, that had Ghost Walk in it. Um, yeah. I can't remember the other, the other two stories that came out around about that time in the main range, but they were joyous. So she's been served very well by by BF. Yep. Like a lot of people, actually, more served than they were on television. Definitely. But yes, so shall we, shall we hear from Mr Gallagher now then? I think we should. Let's head over to hear from Steve. Hello, my name is Stephen Gallagher. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, I started my TV career on Doctor Who. My first story was Warrior's Gate. And my follow-up to Warriors Gate was season 20's Terminus. Fantastic. Welcome back, Steve. Always a joy to speak to you. Yeah. Happy to be here. Oh, as we were saying before we just started there, Terminus is one that I've always enjoyed. And I think that given that the difficult birth that Warriors Gate had, did that in any way put you off coming back to it? Or did you feel that you'd learned enough to be able to go, yep, I know what I'm doing and what they'll want this time around? I seriously thought after Warriors Gate that I would never be able to write for <laughs> Doctor Who again. I mean, I had, you know, I had an idea, but um, but the path to Warriors Gate was so rocky that um, I wrote a, a little note at the end of it to John Nathan Turner 
<laughs> which my, I copied my agent in on it. And she said, I would never allow a client of mine to write a letter like this to a producer. You've probably trashed your career. And it, I was just basically saying, you know, thanks, John, but I was you know, quite unhappy about the whole process and, and here's why. But no, he commissioned Terminus on the back of that. So I think, you know, I'd probably just said what was true. And I think John, you know, appreciated uh, the uh, the rough ride I'd had. And I think he also appreciated, you know, the ideas that I brought to the table. Because Terminus, by that point, I think I'd kind of, you know, roughed out the whole thing as to what I wanted to do. I'm very much one for not actually wanting to commit to anything until I can see the whole thing in my head. And I'll put it all on one side of, um, of, of a yellow legal pad. Um, if I can get the whole structure of the story and the thing that I want to do and how it resolves and how it finishes, if I can get that all patterned down uh, in front of me, then I'll stride forward with confidence. The lesson I learned from, I think it was my third Saturday Night Theatre for Radio 4, was that I got commissioned to uh, to write it just on the kind of back of the envelope idea where I hadn't worked everything out in advance. And it was great because I thought, oh, you know, they have faith in me to, to see this through. Um, that's wonderful. It means I, I must be I must be doing something right. You know, maybe I'm even on, on my way to making it. So I launched into it and the back of the envelope idea, there were flaws in it, which meant I couldn't quite resolve it and make it work. And I fiddled with it and I played with it. And, and in the end, I kind of got it to work, but I was never, ever satisfied with it. And I swore I would never get into that position again because... Okay, so this was um, a radio play, you know, in the 1970s for a producer who kind of trusted me and I'd done stuff before. So it was a recoverable event. But, you know, you get to a certain point where mistakes like that are not recoverable events and they don't come back to you. So from that point onwards, I was determined to create a reputation as someone that you could rely upon to deliver if you brought them in. Um, and I remember years and years later, I worked on a show called Murder Rooms for BBC Films, which was the, the dark beginnings of Sherlock Holmes, created by David Pirrie. And um, he'd written the original miniseries that the thing was spun from. And then there was a series of feature-length adventures came out of that. And because it was BBC films and because the budgets were being released kind of piecemeal, they didn't know how many they were going to make. So they had writers lined up and I was one of the writers that were lined up. Um, but we didn't actually know how many of us were going to get um, were going to get an episode. So when it actually came down to it and a chunk of money came in and they suddenly got the number, they looked at the material they had. And um, of course, mine was pretty well complete. So I went straight in over the wire. Uh, and that was a lesson to me that, um, you know, preparation is everything. Knowing what you're doing is everything. You know, professionalism is everything in this game. And uh, it all traces back to that one radio play. So when it actually came to selling Terminus, I had Terminus more or less down complete. And after Terminus, in fact, I did have um, Nightmare Country, which I was pitching for the next season. I had that down complete as well. But 
famously, and I've, I've told this story before, Eric Sayward's response on that one was it's another million dollar movie and we can't afford them. So Nightmare Country never got to, you know, it, it didn't show up in season 21. It didn't show up at all until about two, three years ago. It was uh, done as a, a big finish, Lost Adventure. But because it was so thoroughly prepared way back then, it was a breeze to actually uh, to actually write it now because uh, everything was there. All I had to do was, uh, you know, as, as Hitchcock used to say, when the screenplay is completed and the dialogue has been added, you know, so <laughs> so the work of it is the uh, the stuff before the dialogue goes in. Yeah, brilliant. Terminus is um, a story that's big, big ideas, big concepts, and just such a an amazing, clever plot. And I remember, you know, I was nine when this went out on telly. Sorry to make you feel old there, Steve. No, it's but okay. You were the target audience. Perfect. And <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I just remember it just being so, just thinking this is, this is proper science fiction mm. with, and Doctor Who just happens to feature in it. Mm. Well, that's, that, that, A, that's flattering. And B, I think you make an important point there that, you know, sometimes people forget that Doctor Who is a show for, I hate to say children, but it is a show, you know, primarily for the young. It's a family show, indeed, but, you know, the uh, the main consideration is the young viewer. Where I had an advantage with uh, with the science fictional aspect of it is, A, that I'd been a, an enthusiastic science fiction reader as a kid and through my teens. B, I was a bit of a, a sort of real science junkie. And C, I don't have the maths to do proper science. And I think that actually that actually frees you up a little bit. Because I remember when I was uh, researching a novel and a subsequent TV show, Chimera, I would consult with scientists. Oh, thank you. I would consult with scientists and they would be so conservative in their um, in their estimates. And I would say things like, you know, say you could splice a human and an animal embryo and they say, well, yes, it, it'll be possible, but we don't think it'll be. Po I don't think it'll be possible for another 50 years. And I think it was done within 18 months of, of that conversation. You know, it actually happened. So a scientist will give you the um, the outside, most likely, possibility that they can stand up. Whereas as a science fiction writer, what you're looking for is the most story-friendly, the most sensational, um, the, the sort of outside envelope of the possibilities. So I had a bunch of concepts which were scientifically sound when I started. And, and gave them a treatment which was prioritizing the drama. And I doubt that you could actually find a scientist who would say, well, yeah, we actually think that's probably how the Big Bang could have happened. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, the processes that you described may well have led to, you know, the outcomes that you threatened. That kind of is never going to happen. You know, I mean, a, a scientist is never going to commit to that. But get a bunch of scientists around a pub table which you know I've, I've, I've been part of before and get them speculating and and get them kind of with the brakes off and you'll get all kinds of wonders coming out yeah i mean i would say i love camera and tv um i you know, poor gore poor poor gore <laughs> and then i went back and read the book never spot 1982 i think was when the novel came out something like that it was i wrote it in i think i finished it in 1980 and it was bought by Sphere and Michael Joseph. Michael Joseph was supposed to do the hardback and Sphere the paperback. And Sphere did the deal 
and they they kind of gave the hardcover publisher the short end of the stick and and the hardcover publisher after a bit michael joseph said oh hang on you know sphere gets all the money and uh, and we get you know just the to send out the review copies so so they actually dropped the hardback so it came out as a paperback original in the uk uh, and that's why it took two years from from delivery to uh, to appearance but it was uh, yeah hardcover first was uh, st martin's press in uh, in new york yeah brilliant let's go back to terminus i suppose that there's so like the whole idea of lazarus disease it's very much an adult feel. I remember being scared by that, particularly when we got the look on the TV, just with the, the gaunt look, the pale faces, mm-hmm. and just people just seem to have lost their personalities and devoid of just joy. And I think it was a very clever move just to sort of show that. And this, to me, that sort of like realise how important your disease is and you know how dangerous and serious they can be. Yeah, I mean, I did um, I did some medieval studies when I was at university, and and I was trying to evoke some of the atmosphere. You know, the terrifying thing of a deadly disease for which you do not have the equipment to cure. You know, you have back then you had herbs and poultices, and when you got something that was um, that was, you know, ripping through the population and a deadly disease, you didn't have science to counter it with. And the idea is that you've got a medieval disease in a scientific context, and actually the science is happening, but it's happening behind closed doors. And superstition stops you going through those closed doors. So in a way, that perpetuates the uh, the terror of the disease. And, uh, you know, I've seen in my lifetime cancer go from something that cannot be mentioned in uh, in any context. You know, it's something that was... If a family member died of it, it was always whispered about and, and nods. Whereas now it's spoken about openly. And of course, that is so much healthier a situation. And that, in a way, was the um, the motivator behind that aspect of, uh, of the Terminus story. And it's kind of telling that um, after the first episode went out, the, um, the British Leprosy Association sent a letter to the Radio Times complaining about the depiction of the disease. And of course, the whole point of the depiction of the disease was that, yes, it was a negative depiction that in the course of the story would be shown to be kind of blown away because it was all about prejudice and superstition. But they they jumped off with the letter on the prejudice and the superstition and they hadn't waited for, well, you know, four weeks later it came out. But uh, by then, you know, the letter was out and published can't really blame them but um but i remember john nathan turner did a reply in the radio times along the lines of uh, well you know we we only try to entertain and uh, you know please don't take it too seriously and that wasn't really the vibe i was after you know i think uh, i think a kind of wait and see we are addressing you know we are trying to address this seriously answer would have been more appropriate but there you go at least it's it's given me a story to tell now <laughs> Were there many changes between your early drafts and the, the final version, or was it fairly small stuff along the way? It was small stuff along the way, most of it um, uh, production-oriented. Um, and I do remember, I mean, one of the uh, the most famous moments in it is where Nissa drops a skirt and flees through the uh, through the corridors. That originally was written as... Um, and, and at the time I wrote it, she was still in her kind of... Victorian-looking um, crushed velvet-type outfit that zipped up to the neck and was was a, a full-body costume. And the idea was that she'd loosen a collar 
and um, and something of that would get left behind. Uh, by the time we got to to actually do Terminus, the costumes had changed. Um, what Janet Fielding called the uh, the crumpet costumes had come in, <laughs> and, uh, and there was there was very little of Nissa's costume that could be discarded. And I think the uh, the skirt was the only. Uh, was the only bit that that could go, and um, I remember getting the scripts back, and uh, and Eric had rewritten that scene to take account of the costume change, um, and oh, that's it. Yeah, the original idea had been that she was wearing a brooch at her neck, and she'd ripped the brooch off in order to loosen her collar because she couldn't breathe, and she'd pricked her finger, so the doctor finds the brooch on the floor with a few drops of blood, and. Um, <laughs> What Eric had actually written is, oh, it's Nissa's skirt and there's blood on it. And I thought, Eric, this is sending entirely a different message. So so we actually kind of polished it back to whatever it finished up as. And I can't even remember what it finished up as. But uh, but that was kind of the, you know, the general process going on. And I mean, fair enough, you know, I did overwrite it and I did cost them a lot of money. And I remember there was I, I wrote this little robot that goes around um maintaining the uh the ship a little maintenance robot and that was an extremely tricky prop that was really tricky to organize and really tricky to operate and i kind of felt sorry for that because its actual value on the screen wasn't so huge and that's a case of um, a writer being a little bit irresponsible when it comes to production not visualizing you know the problem the problems he was causing you do cause problems for people and you know part of the creative process is, is handing people problems to solve creatively in their own field with their own skills but uh, you know but there comes a point where um, you know where you, you don't deliberately set out to make life hard for people you want the thing that you've written to actually make it to the screen as smoothly as possible and as explicitly as possible so any obstacle to that if you can avoid that is is best avoided most definitely and of mm. course, this was um, Turlow's second story. Do you remember having any trouble capturing his character or had you been briefed beforehand? I remember the uh, the briefing. It was just a piece of paper which, uh, which said, Turlow is a young man who the Doctor meets on a planet. And I thought, okay. <laughs> and I, th there was none of his backstory given uh, or anything. So, so when this, uh, you know, when Mark Strickson turns up in basically public school uniform, I thought, oh, okay, that's what Turlow's about then. You know, because I I hadn't had access to any of the, uh, the preceding material because the preceding story was still being written as I was working on mine. So you kind of, you know, you kind of, um, you just take what you've got and you shoot for a character, and then the actor makes makes something of it. And uh, and I think. Yeah, Turlow worked. I was given the whole kind of black black guardian situation, the idea that Turlow's been placed on there as as a kind of mole, in a way, and that every now and again the black guardian makes his appearance and uh, and urges Turlow on. And that was tricky because the black guardian had no part in my story, and I couldn't really create him one. So those scenes tend to kind of just sit in there. A sore thumbs in a little way, you know, Valentine Dial turning up with a, a crow plastered on his head saying, kill the doctor. <laughs> and it kind of works, you know. I'm, I mean, the nice thing about that was, you know, I got the great Valentine Dial in one of mine. I have this thing where uh, whenever uh, whenever any old movies come on or when any when any TV comes on, you know, I'll, I'll sit there in the lounge and uh, when an actor pops up who, uh, who has been in something I produce, I just say, been in one of mine. 
and it really annoys people so that's why i do it yeah, but it must have been a real thrill you know to write for the man in black who imagined somebody you know a voice that's been part of your childhood because my dad was really excited when he saw he was in doctor who i remember him being sort of like it's the man in black yeah 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 and i actually did in later years right Man in Black stories for Radio Four, but by then Edward D'Souza was uh, was doing the voice. You know, he'd, he'd taken over from uh, from Valentine. So again, whenever Edward D'Souza turns up on TV, it's been in one of mine. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Got to be proprietorial over those actors. <laughs> They've probably forgotten me, but for me, you know, they're part of a, a big family, and I always feel a certain kind of loyalty and affection towards them. You know, if you've been in one of mine, then, you know, you, as far as I'm concerned, you're family forever. Absolutely. The way it should be. The way it should be. Mm. And did you go down to the studio for this one? I did. I did. I was uh, I was there for, uh, for at least one day, possibly two. In fact, no, I was there for two because I remember now I was in the studio for uh, for one day because that's how I came to observe how um, how awkward and how much trouble that little robot prop was causing. And also, the um, I remember um, Dick Coles, the designer, had to walk around with a little paint um, wallpaper roller um, because the uh, the screaming skulls on the doors of, uh, of the Terminus ship um, were like sticky back plastic. And they they were lifting off the door and, and were getting bubbles in them. So he'd have to go around and iron all the bubbles out. That's my main memory of actually the uh, the studio shoot. But the uh, the fun part of it was um, down in in Ealing, the old Ealing Studios that the BBC by then owned, because all those scenes of uh, of Tegan and Turlow crawling around in the air ducts of the ship uh, were filmed at Ealing. And they were done on 16 mil film as opposed to you know, studio cameras. The reason for that, I was told, was that if you had a filming element in your show, you could get an extra day on your schedule. So it was a way of pinching an extra day, taking some of the pressure off the studio shoot. And, uh, and what was really nice about that uh, was that it was a very, very small film, you know, a TV studio crew is a hundred people or so. You know, you've got your electricians, you've got your gaffers, you've got all your ancillary stuff all around. And as a writer, you kind of stand at the sidelines and um, just try not to get in anybody's way. But with the film crew in Ealing, it was a very small, very tight crew. Small camera crew, designer was uh, somebody from the art department on hand, director, floor manager, actors and that was mostly it you know makeup obviously but there were very few of us and you know for i think two days we were there it was like a little party it was quite chatty um really enjoyable everybody got to know everybody and i sort of felt like one of the gang you know i was uh, i was i was recognized and i was appreciated as opposed to just an ob obstacle that had to be got around so i really enjoyed that couple of days the cameraman on that was Remy Adifarisin, who went on to a Hollywood career, um, very, very uh, successful, you know, feature film director of photography. But he was our cameraman on the uh, on the on the duct scenes in uh, in Terminus. That's brilliant! I didn't know that. That's a good fact. New fact. I like yeah. That. Oh well, you want you want another wee fact um, here. Oh, Uncredited amongst the uh, the Lazars, you know, under all the makeup was uh, was Kathy Burke. Huh. You know, quite early in her career, but obviously, uh, you know, 
earning a few quid by uh, dunning the bandages and the grease paint for a day. Brilliant. That's good, good fact. Yeah. Something that I was wondering with them, given that you'd still grown up watching Doctor Who, um, I'd imagine that you'd carried on watching the show after Warriors Gate, so you'd seen what Peter's Doctor was like through season 19, so writing for him and obviously for Nissa and for Tegan was... You, you knew their voices. Yes, yeah. I mean, yeah. The switch from uh, from Tom to Peter was quite um, a, a pivot. You know, I mean, it was a huge kind of turn from, from one to another. Prior to, uh, to Peter, the Doctor, you know, through Tom, through Patrick Troughton, through Bill Hartnell, had been a kind of patriarchal eccentric, a bit of a mad grandfather, or in Tom's case, perhaps more a mad uncle. <laughs> but with Peter, you know, what you got was... Um, you know, an affable, very likable, confident, ex-public schoolboy type. I, mean, I don't know if Peter was an ex-public schoolboy or what, I don't know. But, you know, the whole kind of cricketing and the uh, the um, the kind of gentlemanly demeanour. This kind of came to the fore when, uh, when I wrote a scene in Terminus where, being reunited with Nyssa, they hug. And this actually caused something of um, of a stir, and a, you know there was a conversation about it. Can the doctor hug the companion? Um, is that a thing that we can have them do? Because there'd always been you know a distance between them before then. And I remember my mother commented on it because you know in the end we went ahead and did it, and uh, and she said, "Oh, that was a really nice moment." She said, "I wasn't expecting that." I thought, "Oh, good," you know, because we've you know we've we've done something in the uh, in the lore of Doctor Who, we've, we've kind of broken a little bit of a barrier. Because I've always thought that one of the things that the show had never really addressed up to that point, and I did address it in a short story once that, uh, that came out in, uh, I think, a Doctor Who annual somewhere. But the notion that the Doctor kind of, I know he's, he's got a, um, a lifespan with a, with a limit on it, but compared to everybody else, the Doctor lives forever. And these people come into and out of his life and they all mean a lot to him while they're there. But even as he's um, as he's with them, he's aware that this is temporary, this is going to end. You know, this is a moment, but it's only a moment. And the day will come when it will all be over and they'll go back to their short lives and I'll carry on with my long one and then it'll be something else. And I thought, well, that's a kind of... It makes the moment sweet, but it makes the life lonely. And that, to me was my insight into the character of the doctor and i tried to uh, i tried to put i think the story was called something like time on the vine and it was early 90s uh, a doctor who annual i think it came out in but i've wandered off completely whatever whatever <laughs> it was you asked me <laughs> oh it's all good for just uh, to for him. of course when you were in the studio you must have been quite impressed by the design particularly in the costumes of the veneer Oh, God, yes, yes. Uh, that was Dee Robson was the costume designer on that. And she had taken to heart everything that I'd um, I'd put in. Costume always, always did this in, in Doctor Who. I found it on Warrior's Gate as well, where, you know, you provide reference and you provide um, as detailed um, an evocation of the costume as you can. And um, if they've got that much detail, they really, really go for it. And with the Vanir, the... Um, with the Vanir, the, the inspiration, again, going back to uh, medieval studies, was um, it was actually a tomb in York Minster, which was a memento mori tomb. And 
the fascinating thing about it is that on the top of the tomb you've got you know the the, the traditional carving of the uh, of the laid out uh, deceased person in their finery and if you remove that stone top there is another carving underneath it and that carving is of a semi-decayed body yeah with uh, with the flesh still kind of clinging to the bones and the the clothes in rags in the same pose and everything and then of course you go one layer down from that and you'll you'll get the actual coffin with the skeleton in it and the idea is that um, we should all remember that one day we will die you know and again this ties in with the um with the philosophy of the doctor as i as i came to see it uh, that one day you know everything is temporary flesh is temporary values are permanent and it's we always have to bear that in mind so people used to in the middle ages they used to carry little memento moris you know a little brooch with um, a human face on one side and a skull on the other always you know and they would they would finger the brooch and remind themselves that oh this is temporary one day we'll well they were supposed to finger it and remind themselves that this is temporary one day we'll die but of course what they would do is they would you know they would happily get on with their lives and you know you see some you see some vestiges of this in shakespeare you know who, who was very much kind of a child of the just post medieval age you know um you know tell your mistress let her paint an inch thick to this favor she will come you know the skull is always you know webster saw the skull beneath the skin as Elliot said and that is the well that's that's basically the vanier costume all of that for a doctor who costume you know you can tell we took trouble over this show <laughs> Most definitely, definitely. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, um, old friend John Lidecker came back to do the novelisation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good old John. Happy on his <laughs> private island now, spending his royalties. Absolutely. All built up from the sales of Terminus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've explained before that the reason that I took the, uh, the pseudonym is that I was both... A, I had a screenwriting career and I had a novel career. And... While I was happy for original screenplays and original novels to uh, to have my name on them, the idea of adapting a screenplay into a novel, I thought, blurred the lines between. So I tried to keep distinct personas for the two. And I'd used John Lidecker for, um, for Warrior's Gate. I used it for a couple of other novelizations as well. Um, after Terminus, I don't think I used it again. I think um, I think I kind of abandoned that way of thinking. I felt secure enough in in both of those careers to think, well, I don't really need to. I don't really need to cover my tracks. I don't need to make any apologies. You know, I'm, I don't necessarily need to uh, knock out novelizations for money anymore either, which is you know something I did in the early days. 1979, I uh, I was working at Granada, and um, we had a strike. And we were out for uh, for three, four months. And during that time, everybody took side jobs. And I took on a novelization. And I novelized Kirk Douglas' movie, Saturn 3, directed by Stanley Donan. And the money I got for that convinced me that uh, maybe I could make a, make a go of this writing do. So um, the strike was kind of the start of... You know, a fork in the career path for me because I was quite happily employed in television up to that point, but uh, I got the writing bug, and uh, and away away I went. Yeah. Now, did you ever see the clip on Harry Hill, of from Terminus that they used, which he turned into a game? He had Peter Davison on, and it was taking the chair and throwing it to stop the mm. door. Now that yeah, was, yeah. that must have given you a laugh. 
to see it that did it did I might have got about nine pence out of that as well you know because anytime anything gets used even if it's just a short clip you get a royalty and when I say nine pence I probably literally mean you know, about nine pence because uh, you don't get much it's proportionate to the length of the show so a tiny clip like that um, you'd get you know a slight honorarium and uh, and you'd be bought out for it but what of course is interesting is that the um the rights in anything that you brought to doctor who back then you know any uh, any monsters any creatures any supplementary characters any settings that you brought in you retain the copyright to that's um that's not the case these days you know it's a big rights grab these days the bbc has realized what a property it's got in the doctor but that back then it wasn't as much valued so um so yeah any uh, anything they use from the old shows they've got to pay me for Excellent. unless of course it's the doctor the tardis one of the companions yeah. you know because they're all bbc owned or canine is is um you know the bob baker estate yeah, so you must be looking forward to seeing the Blu-ray getting this wonderful new box set. Oh, the box sets are lovely, aren't they? I mean, I've got the Season 18 box set and, uh, you know, you just sit there taking it apart and putting it back together again. A bit like Eeyore with his uh, with his <laughs> <laughs> with his present. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're gorgeous pieces of design. The uh, the stuff is remastered to uh, within an inch of its life and looks as good as it's ever going to look. I'm not entirely sure what I think about the idea of, of redoing special effects. I suppose I don't mind, because one of the jobs I had on Terminus when I was there for that couple of days was they sent me off to a room with a couple of VHS cassettes to review one of the effects, which was the um, the pirate ship and the Terminus ship docking together. And they were done against the blue screen, and the Terminus model was mounted on a blue blue stick and the uh, the spaceship was on another blue stick which was kind of held in the hand and just out of sight one of the effects technicians was guiding the ship in on the end of its stick and he did this about 15 20 times i lost count how many times he did it because every time it kind of wobbled my job was to go through all of those and pick the one that wobbled least and then that was the one that they would uh, do the color separation overlay on, put the star field in the background, take the blue out, and uh, and that's what ended up in the show. So I suppose, you know, having said I'm not a big fan of uh, of the redoing of special effects, I've decided that I've just, in the last couple of minutes, I've gone 180 degrees on that one, and I think it's probably <laughs> a great idea. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Steve, we hope you enjoy the box set when it comes through your door, and uh, we're all looking forward to seeing a new remastered Glorious Terminus. No, I'm glad to hear it. Thanks again. Well, there you go. An explanation given for that skirt scene. Yes. Good grief. Less said about that, the better. Yeah. Anyway. And uh, also the fact that Steve had seen the, the Harry Hill moment. Did you see that at the time or did you catch it later? Um, chance be a fine thing. And relax. No, I didn't see it, but I saw it sort of shared on the socials and YouTube and stuff afterwards. Very soon, it was very, very funny. Um, flinging a chair at the door, amazing. Yes, Harry was a big Doctor Who fan, isn't he? I think he is. Yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, very tickled to, to learn that, that Mr. Lidecker got some money out of it. That's absolutely hilarious. <laughs> all nine pence. Yeah, yep. superb. Don't spend all at once, Steve. <laughs> I'm sure he won't. Anyway, so. That's pretty much all we've got time for this week, but we'll be back next week and we've got another exclusive interview, Dave. Do we? Oh, good. That's good to know. I, at this point, listeners, I have no idea who it was, so I look forward to, 
to um to being surprised next Thursday morning just as you. Well, actually, I'll tell you who it is now. Okay. It's Al Dewar, creative director of Character Options. Of course, we haven't heard from him from a very lo- for a very long time, so that's good. Yep. Excellent. So Al's going to tell us about the latest wave of action figures. We're going to go back and chat about the David Whittaker and... No, we're not. The David Tennant and Jodie Whittaker 2-pack. The David Whittaker action figure. That's the <laughs> one. The production team, they did that's, that with the bobbleheads for like Game of Thrones. That's very Andrew Mark Thompson, quite frankly. <laughs> a range of um, Doctor Who action figures of the writers. I'm sure he's done similar already. Yeah. Anyway. Yes, so um, we'll have... Andrew, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> there's one for you. Yeah, we'll have... I'll also talking about the David Tennant and Jodie Whittaker figures. And... He's also got some exclusives for us Excellent. about things that were and never were and things that might be, which is what we need. Anticipation. Good. Hopefully I'll have something nice to say about the new the new sets as well. That'd be very good. If not, if from Alfred Ages. I look forward to it then. We certainly do. Yes, and I suppose at this point I have to ask you a question, don't I? Yes, you do. What are we, um, but before I do that, I'll remind everyone to check out the Earth 2 podcast, Peace and Love. Um, you better t- tell us what the Earth 2 podcast is yes, for those who don't know. The Earth 2 podcast is a DC Comics podcast that I do with my friend Peter Watson. We are charting the, the, the pre-Crisis and Infinite Earth to DC Comics multiverse with an e- emphasis on their Golden Age characters. Um, occasional episodes this year with guest voices helping us out by playing some other characters. Kenny has appeared already this year and hopefully all going well, he'll, he'll appear again before too long. So yes, if, if you don't get enough Dave Steele in your life, you can always check that out if I'm not turning up and put pieces of eight doing voiceovers or whatever. <laughs> but yes, so Kenny, I have to ask you a question. What are we going to play out with today? Well, Dave, I'm glad you asked me that because a track that would have been appropriate for just us was us sitting here in the car and given that it's all steamed up, it would have been Steamy Windows would have been appropriate from Tina Turner. However, since we originally recorded that ending and I've actually come back out to the car to re-record because I thought of a better track, and wanted to get the same ambience that should match. So, we're going to go with a track from the electronic musical group Cybrid, S-Y-B-R-I-D, and they have a track called Terminus, which appeared on their 2016 album Sonorous. So, here we go, we're going to have Cybrid and Terminus. Peace out, we'll see you soon. See you next week. Bye-bye.